Good morning, Village. We have some very creative people here, and um, some of our creatives had some fun with with where we went last week with the whole sequel and and using Star Wars Episode Four, actually really one, and then the real Episode Two called Five, um, and understanding how Acts relates with Luke, and that this is the second part, and. Um, I suspect that they have a gift for us again this morning, our our creatives. And so that's our introduction for for Acts 1 today. Thank you, Joshua. um, (laughs) But it's a good reminder that, that, that God's Word is one story. One story about... The, the gospel, one story about redemption bought with Jesus' blood. And we saw Luke was the story of the work of Christ and Christ coming to bring the gospel and, and the work of Christ to bring salvation. Whereas Acts is the story of the continuing work of Christ through the church. And so they are just two, two episodes of the same story. And so that, um, I know a lot of people talked about that this week, just as a good way of understanding the relationship between the two and what was happening. As you saw in the scrawl, um, last week we, we saw the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And at the end of the ascension, the disciples are just standing there looking up and wondering what's going to happen. And, I, and, and like we, we conjectured last week, maybe expecting Him to come right back. We don't know. Maybe wondering what's going on. Because they were just given this incredible command to go into all the world, and then Jesus left. And so they were, they were standing there waiting, and, and the, the men, the angels came and said, what are you doing? Go. Go obey. Go do what you're supposed to do. And so they went, and that's where the, the opening intro left us, is they went and they waited. Because that was their instruction. Go and wait. And so they, they, they weren't sure how long. They weren't sure when the Holy Spirit would come. What do you do while waiting? Now, it brings up a good question for us this morning. How many of us like to wait? I don't think anyone here would be like, you know, waiting is the best thing ever. I, I get frustrated when I have to cook something in the microwave for over 60 seconds. I, it's like, what is going on? This is taking forever. And, and um, it's just not. You know, different people wait in different ways, right? I have some in my family that are waiting by the door for everyone else. And they're like, come on, come on, let's hurry, let's hurry, let's go. And I have others in my family that waiting is, okay, I have more time to get something else done. And if I'm to be efficient with my time, I'm going to do other things while I'm waiting. And, and then it, it just snowballs. And But we all wait differently. But I think we could say we all hate waiting. We get frustrated when the car ahead of us in the drive-thru orders 10 Happy Meals. Because we know that's 20 minutes. Uh, of trying to figure that out. We get frustrated when the computer takes too long to boot when it's faster than it ever has been in the last, well, since computers were created. We wait for a lot of things. And we struggle with that concept. And that's where the disciples were waiting for the biggest thing, the promise that they had. You know, on a more serious note, we, we wait for things in life all the time. And we are in this culture of always looking for the next thing as, as going to be the answer. When I graduate, I'm going to be happy. When I get a car, when I get into a relationship, when I get married, when I have kids, I'm going to be happy. When they leave, I'm going to be happy. When I, when I get that promotion or raise, when this candidate gets in office, everything will be solved. 
And so we wait, and we're always waiting with this expectancy that somehow, somehow the next step is going to make things right. And it's hard. Some of you have been waiting for others and relatives to come to Christ. And you've been praying for 20, 30 years for someone to come to Christ. And that waiting is hard. Sometimes we're waiting for a certain ministry to, to form or certain things. And we're excited about a lot of outreach things coming up at Village and Living Nativity and Project Touch and some of the things happening. And we're waiting, but we don't want to get ahead of the Holy Spirit in that waiting. You know, for us personally, we waited for kids for a long time, 12, 13 years of hoping and praying and, and waiting for kids. And that had its own challenges and its own hardships. But God was there in the waiting. So what do we do in the waiting? What do we do while we're waiting and all of us are waiting for Jesus to come back in this broken world? How do we handle that? And today's text will be just a little snapshot into the time between the command to wait and between the coming of the Holy Spirit. What did the early church do? What did the disciples do? What did this group do? How did they handle this? Because we know there were a number of days, probably about 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost. So how did they handle that? So turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we'll be starting at verse 12, and we'll look at 12 through 26 this morning. As you're turning there, I wanted to read a a summary by by one of the commentators just of the whole book of Acts to sort of bring last week into this week. The book of Acts is, in a real sense, a book for renewal. It calls the church back to its roots, to the early church in the upper room and its undivided devotion to prayer, to its missionary fervor, its fellowship and sharing, its mutual trust and unity. It sets a pattern for faithful discipleship, for a witness that walks in the footsteps of the Master, a wholehearted commitment with a willingness to sacrifice and even to suffer. It speaks to us when discouraged, reminding us that all time is in God's hands, reassuring us of the reality of His Spirit in our lives and witness. It challenges us to open our hearts to the power of the Spirit that we might be faithful witnesses to the Word and come to experience anew its triumph in our time. And that's a wonderful description of the book of Acts and a summary as we come into now the first episode. The first episode in the life of the disciples, and that episode is, is an episode of waiting. So if I had to summarize the text today, I'd say the disciples actively waited for the Holy Spirit through community, prayer, the Word, and obedience, preparing themselves to the, do the work of Christ. Starting in verse 12 then, the episode starts, the scene starts. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers." And we see this first scene, what they were doing in the waiting and how they were waiting well and what was going on. And we see this scene where all of them, this whole group, goes to the upper room and they're just sort of hanging out. 
and, and trying to, to fill this time while they waited. And they, they chose well. And they filled it well. And so much we can learn from, from this text this morning. Just a quick word about interpreting Acts. And, and one of the questions we have in, in Acts is, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Let me explain what I mean. There's two different ways of looking at history in the Bible. Descriptive simply says it's describing what happened. Yea, we know what happened, and it's simply for knowledge to say this is how it happened back then. Prescriptive, the idea is, does this tell the church what it should be like today? Is this a proactive command or a prescriptive command for how we should act? And I wanted our first week diving into the text of Acts to, to talk about this a little bit, because if we say that Acts is just descriptive, then for the next year, we're just going to fill our heads with head knowledge and it won't apply. And, and, and there won't be really anything we do with it. But we also have to be careful on prescriptive, because we don't want to take a text like this and say, we're doing it wrong, we should all be in an upper room. Because they were in an upper room. Okay, so that part of it is descriptive. And so just in a nutshell, and we can spend a lot of time talking about that, Acts, the way we're going to approach Acts is it's descriptive in the details and the form, but it's prescriptive in the principles and motivation. It's descriptive in the details of what happened. So it tells us what happened and in, in the way that it happened at their time. But for us, it is prescriptive as well in the principles and motivations and the lessons that we see there. And so coming to today's text, this isn't saying we have to have 12 people get together in an upper room. That's all descriptive of the details of what happens. But it is prescriptive to the church when we see their devotion to unity, when we see their devotion to prayer, when we see the devotion to the word. And so those are lessons, those are principles that God has for his church. See, the thing is, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. How much of scripture? All scripture. And so we can't just take a, a narrative like Acts and say, it's just history. God intends it to apply to our lives. God intends it to teach us, to correct us, to to reprove us. And so we come to this, I hope we come to this as more than just a history lesson. And each of the texts we go through to say, what can we learn? How was God working with the disciples? How was God forming the church? What is the church to be, we've said, is the first half of Acts or the first third? And what is the church to do is the last two thirds of Acts? And we can learn some incredible lessons from that. And so we come to these, these verses. We just read three of them. And we ask the question, how did they wait well? What did they do in the waiting? How did they keep busy while waiting? Because waiting has all kinds of opportunities for temptation, for frustration, as we know, because we don't like to wait. But in a group as you wait, if we put all of us 10 days in a room together... We'd be on each other's backs by the end of that. T- well, okay, no one here because we love each other. Um, we never get annoyed with people we're around for 10 days straight. No, it would be, there would be things where we'd rub each other wrong. And they, it probably was for them. And so, so we need to look at, okay, what did they do? And the first thing that they did is they were in community. 
And the four words that I want us to remember today is community, prayer, the word, and obedience. Community, prayer, the word, and obedience. Some of you that love notes just filled in all your blanks and you're very happy. And now you can listen. And none of these are new concepts, church. None of these are concepts we haven't taught on before, but Acts is, as I read in the, the, the summary, Acts is a call to renewal, a call to remember, a call to come back to them. And so we start with community in these first three verses. And, and, and listen to the words and think community as, as I reread it. Then they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet. And so they're together. They're watching this. They go back to, to Jerusalem. And the, the mount, mount called Olivet, or the, the Mount of Olives, is near Jerusalem. It says a Sabbath journey is away. And that's coming from one of the rules that they had that you couldn't work on the Sabbath. So you could only walk so far, about 2,000 cubits. And I know not many of you measure in cubits. So maybe a half mile, three quarters of a mile. And it's really interesting. I have a couple pictures here of um, Mount of, of Olives, just so we can get an understanding. This is a different view than I usually show of the Mount of Olives. This is from the west. And you're looking now east over the city of Jerusalem. This is the old city of Jerusalem. This is the current Temple Mount up there, so that's Dome of the Rock. It's where the temple would have been before. And this mountain that you see in the background, that's the Mount of Olives. So it's just to the east of Jerusalem. In fact, this spire is one of the churches that might be near where Jesus ascended. One of the things we say in Israel, this might be where this happened. We, we, don't, we don't know exactly, but we take Scripture, and it was somewhere on this mountain. Now, we know from the other Gospels that it mentioned Bethany. Well, Bethany just happens to be on the backside of this hill. A hill's probably a better word for it because we, we know what mountains are. Um, on the backside of that is Bethany, where Jesus would go, especially during Passion Week. He'd go there back there every day because that's where they were staying. But the Mount of Olives is significant as well because Zechariah says that's where Jesus is going to return to first. And he's going to come there and come into Jerusalem and set up his earthly kingdom. Now, a more traditional picture is the next one. This is from the Mount of Olives, looking down on the Temple Mount. And so you can see this structure here, this platform and flat area is the Temple Mount. Again, that's the current Dome of the Rock, but that's where the temple would have been in Jesus' days. And so this is looking back from where Jesus ascended into heaven. The disciples go down this valley, and then they go into the old city there to the upper room. So that's just a little bit of, of fun pictures with Pastor Ron. Um, just sort of helps us picture it. It was close. Um, we walked this on our Israel trips. Uh, that, that day we don't even take the bus. We just walk this because it's a, a really easy walk. And so the story starts that the disciples, after they heard from the angels, go, stop just gazing up into the air, go and do what Jesus said. They go and they obey. And they go to the upper room. And then it lists all of the disciples. And if you count them, there's 11 of them there. Why 11? It, it does not have Judas. And that's part of the story of where we're going this morning. Um, Judas Iscariot is not in the list. And so Luke is very diligent to list everyone else. But one of the points he's making is how many disciples were together? All of them. All the remaining ones. All of them are together. Who else is with them? 
the women, probably referring to at least the women that, that went to the tomb and the women that um, were at the cross and that followed Jesus. Then you have Mary, mother of Jesus. And this is actually the last time in the New Testament where she's mentioned. Um, you have Jesus' brothers, right, in verse 14? That's significant because we know his brothers were actually skeptics earlier. We know that from John. And here, all of a sudden, they're on board. And they're with the group. And so what you see is this, this group of followers, this inner group of disciples that are coming together, and they're coming together to wait. But they're waiting together. And, and I want us to see that part of waiting well is to do this in community. To come to community, they were together building unity. And so we see there the list of disciples. And then all these, in verse 14, the very first feature of what they're doing is mentioned, all these with one accord. Doesn't mean they all shared one car. It means, sorry, dad joke. Um, (laughs) It means that they were of one mind, that there was unity there. Harmony is sometimes how that word is interpreted. Interestingly enough, this is the first of six times that this particular word is used in Acts to describe the church. Now, how do you get get this group together in unity? It's only by the gospel. Only by the gospel that these people would ever get along. But they had seen Jesus resurrected. And they had seen that death and sin were defeated. And they had seen that we are equal because of the cross. And so they took Jesus' instructions seriously. They came together and they, they fought for unity. Now, now, like we said, there's a lot of time together. There's a lot of opportunities. Do you think at any point someone might have wanted to look at Peter and said, you know what? You denied our Lord. What's up with that, bro? And, and you can just see this, this situation where things could happen. Not a lot of them were at the cross. You think some might have said, where were you? Where were you when when Jesus most needed us? Where were you when Mary most needed us? As Peter starts to sort of take charge, maybe someone's saying, who put you in charge? You're Peter, foot and mouth Peter. Let's pick someone else. I, I don't know, but the opportunity presented itself for disunity. And what we see here is the disciples in this group fought for unity. They were devoted to being together. And we're going to see that a little later in the descriptions of the church. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. And we'll get to prayer in a moment. But if we're to wait well as a church, if we're to see God work, and and see God work in the future, we need to come together in unity. We need to have this kind of harmony together. And so we need to ask questions like, what divides us? What frustrates us? And we can let that become front of mind for us and stop us from serving God. Or we can learn to put that aside and show grace to each other and be a unified family of God. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 gives a lot of insight of how to do this. As Paul writes through the Holy Spirit, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. Amen. And then he gets into to an eagerness to maintain unity, but he says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so Paul, as he writes about it, says unity in the spirit is essential for the church and the church is to be eager for it, looking for it, anxious for it. And we do this by being humble, it says. By being gentle to each other. I don't have to be right. How I approach things will be one of gentleness. By being patient with each other. None of us are perfect. We all need a good dose of, of patience. And I pray that we're patient, people around us are patient. Bearing with one another in love. Meaning that love covers our grievances and love is higher than our grievances. Eager to maintain the spirit or the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's a picture of what the church should be. So if we're to wait well as a church for what God is doing in our church, if we're to wait well in our own lives, we need to do that in community. We don't do that in isolation. And so they're building community together. Don't neglect community when you're struggling with waiting. The temptation is to do that. My temptation is to retreat into myself, go into my own corner, maybe go to the mountains and fish or something. But that's not the answer in biblical community. The answer is to embrace community, to handle this together, to encourage one another, to support one another. And so we're called to build it. You know, again, we're looking, uh, looking forward. I think God is doing some great things here at Village, both with um, people coming, coming in, with outreach, with people being saved, with the gospel going out. But what could stop it is disunity. And so I challenge you to ask the question this morning, is there anything between you and anyone else here? Do you have an issue with anyone here? Don't raise your hands. (laughs) But in your heart and in a prayerful way, do I have an issue with someone that I need to give over to God? That I need to forgive? Because if you don't deal with it and if you don't cover that with unity and love, it will affect you moving forward with God's work. It will affect village moving forward with God's work. It's that important. And so the example that we see is this mismatched group is in one accord. It's in one accord. Now the second thing we see, I think, is part of building unity and is an essential part of building unity. They devoted themselves to prayer. Some of your translations say to continual prayer or to constant prayer. And, and the, the wording there actually is a, an imperfect that says it is ongoing. It's something that should be regularly happening. And so this early church, while they're waiting for the Holy Spirit, while they're wondering when He's going to come, while they're wondering when they can go continue Jesus' work, they're like, what should we do? Let's pray. Let's pray. And what an important step. And so they're praying together. This is corporate prayer. And, they're pray- and that helps to build unity. And it's this constant attitude being busily engaged with prayer. And so this is more than just saying, I'm going to pray once or twice about an issue and then stop. It's more than just saying, oh, we have one pastoral prayer on Sunday morning and we're good. This is a constant attitude of prayer. This is getting together with people around and say, hey, do you want to just get together and pray this week for, for village? Do you want to just get together and pray for what's going on? 
I love the, the Facebook group that we have at Village, the private Facebook group for, for prayer requests, because people share prayer requests and people are praying, and it's, it's the, the church family coming together in prayer. A word that we've used in the past when we studied James was we're to be fervently praying. And that helps me to not just think of this as a throwaway weak sauce prayer, but really fervent prayer where I am working at it. Throughout the day, are we praying for village? Are we praying for the Awana program? Are we praying for Project Touch and some of the things that we're doing? Throughout the day, are we praying for each other? For some of the needs? For some of the challenges? For some of the distractions that I think Satan is putting in our way? We need to be devoted to prayer. That's what they did. What did they pray about? We don't know. I suspect it was praying for the Holy Spirit to come. I suspect it was praying for some of the decisions they had to make. How do we prepare ourselves to be witnesses? But they were, they were dedicated to prayer. Prayer is seeking God. And when we get into a waiting situation, instead of shutting down, we should, we should double down on seeking God. What is God trying to do? What is God trying to teach me? That's part of waiting well. It keeps us from getting impatient with it and, and, and wanting God to hurry up and act on our timetable. But prayer is seeking God. Lamentations twenty two twenty five says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. And it ties waiting with seeking, and, and that seeking God in the waiting is what really is, gets us through. One of the authors I was reading said, prayer will be a thermometer of the spiritual health of a church. And I agree with that. How devoted we are to prayer is a thermometer of where we're at spiritually as a church. It also applies personally. How devoted you are to prayer is a spiritual thermometer of where you're at with God. It's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing for me to hear sometimes on a busy week. And, and here's the thing. I'm not saying that you pull over every five minutes and bow your head and pray. I, I'm not saying that you, you take a, a five-hour lunch at work, which your boss probably would not approve of, and, and pray. I'm saying, like we saw in First Thessalonians 5, is that this is a constant attitude of prayer. Throughout the day, as you're driving, as God brings someone to mind, just talk to God about that person. Pray for that person. And constantly be seeking God and being in in a conversation with God. And when we start to think of prayer as that essential in life, that much part of life, then we draw close to God and the waiting isn't so bad. Prayer also is one of the ways that God has chosen to work. And so God has chosen to answer prayer so he receives glory, right? And we're not manipulating God, but he's asked his kids to ask, his children to ask. And as he answers it, he gets the glory, he gets the praise. And it, it really unleashes his power and work. Going back to the, the mid-1800s, there's a big revival in America. And um, one of the, the things that they think sparked the revival, and some of the people that were part of that have written, is that there was a prayer meeting on Fulton Street at a church on Fulton Street. And it really sparked the revival. It began with six people getting together and regularly praying. Within six months, there were 10,000 businessmen gathering daily for prayer in New York City. 
within two years, one million converts were added to the American church. Wouldn't that be cool? How many of you would love to see that the next year? million new people in the church that genuinely believe in Jesus Christ. One of the pastors that was part of it said this, There has never been a revival in any country that has not begun in united prayer. And no revival has ever continued beyond the duration of those prayer meetings. We want, we want revival. We want people to come to, to Christ. We want to see souls saved for Christ. Are we willing to do the work of prayer? To pray for the lost, to care for the lost, to ache for the lost, and pray that God would move. That's what this early church, the disciples, were doing. And so we see that they're in one accord. They're devoting themselves to prayer together. And then we see the story move on in 15, and we see their commitment to the Word, that through this time, they're also looking up Scriptures. They're, they're looking to Scripture to make sense of things and for direction. And, and we see both of those in the verses to come, starting at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said... Now, a couple things to, to look at here. Peter already is, is showing up as the leader of the church, the spokesman for the church. And that's what Jesus had assigned him to do. And now we're up to about 120 people there. Brothers, that's, that's brothers and sisters. It's, it's one of those all-inclusive gender plurals that um, means there, there, were, there were 120 disciples there, men and women, which probably was a little crowded some days in that upper room. And they're getting together. And so Peter stands up with them and he says this, Brothers, in verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And we get an insight there. As soon as you see concerning Judas, we're like, oh, Peter is starting to make sense of what happened. If you're one of the disciples and Judas had been with you for three years, and then all of a sudden he turns on you, turns Jesus in, and then Jesus is crucified, might you wonder what was going on? Might there be some questions? And so they've been in the Word, Peter's been in the Word, trying to make sense of this just awful situation. Betrayal by one of your own. And so he, he begins to go back to Scripture. And he says, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Which is really interesting here. We just studied Psalms. He's going to quote Psalms. And he calls them Scripture and he calls it written by the Holy Spirit, just in terms of uh, a doctrine of bibliography. Bibliology, sorry. And so he says, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And so Peter goes back to Scripture to make sense of things he doesn't understand. Oh, that we would do the same. When we're waiting, there's almost always things we don't understand. There's almost always questions we have about how God is working or if God is working or if we've been abandoned. But Peter goes back to Scripture. And he says it had to happen. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. And he goes on in verse 17 and says, For he was numbered, Judas was numbered among us. He was allotted his share in this ministry. He was given tasks by Jesus. He was one of us. And then 18 and 19 are a little parenthesis of what happened to Judas. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Great Sunday morning material. 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. And so Luke takes a little bit of a side. That's probably not Peter talking. Luke takes a little bit of, of parenthesis here. Say, this is what happened to Judas. Now, uh, just as an aside, something that I want to deal with, this seems to contradict the passage in Matthew. And, and the thing is, we look at Scripture. We believe Scripture is inerrant. There is no contradiction. And so, but we also believe, I, I believe the truth is never afraid of questions. And so I always want us to be able to question and say, okay, what's going on here? Matthew has him hanging himself in a field. Matthew and Luke have different opinions of who bought the field or or how this happened. Now, did he acquire the field or did the Pharisees? Because in Matthew, it says he took the money, he took the silver, threw it at the Pharisees, and then he went out and hung himself because he was so frustrated and so um, just the angst of all this was too much for him. Now, there are a lot of different theories of how to resolve this. I think probably the easiest is to understand, and and Augustine said this as well, the easiest is to understand both accounts as being true. Um, If someone hangs themselves, and and not to get too graphic here, but they, they die and pass away, what happens to the body as it hangs there? It, it, It expands. Now, at some point, either the rope breaks or the knot comes loose, that body falls probably headlong into the ground. What happens when a a body that is expanded that way hits sharp objects on the ground? It's not that hard to resolve if we come at it from the perspective that God's word is true. Both are probably true. Um, That's probably what happened. As far as the money goes... um, there's a lot of talk that probably the Pharisees did buy the money, but they wouldn't have been allowed to buy anything with blood money. So it would have been bought as Judas's money in his name. And so I, I, I can picture it as I compare the accounts. Judas goes and he throws the money and, and he try, he's trying to get rid of the guilt that he's suffering. It doesn't work. The Pharisees buy this land in his name. And so he goes there and he ends it there. What a, he just can't handle it anymore. And so the two accounts, I think we need to view them both as, as true. Now, that's just sort of an aside to, okay, they're looking to the word to make sense of things and for direction. But you see here that that's what Peter's doing. Why did Judas do this? And, and so then he goes on, we see in verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And that's from Psalm 69. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then from Psalm 109, he says, and let another take his office. Now we have to understand that this is being written under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this understanding of the Psalms is from the Holy Spirit. And when you look at Psalm 69, when you look at Psalm 109, these are what we would call royal psalms. And we just covered psalms, and we covered Psalm 69, actually. These are royal psalms that were first applied to King David, but then later applied to the perfect king king that was coming, the Messiah. And so already the understanding was that these psalms applied to the Messiah. And Peter here is putting it all together, and he's searching Scripture, and he reads these psalms. He's like wait a minute, if those are about the Messiah, 
and Jesus is the Messiah, logically, these are about Jesus. And so he applies these verses that are about the enemies of the Messiah, that his camp will become desolate, there will be no one to dwell in it, or his land will become desolate. We know that land where he killed himself became a cemetery for um, non-Jews. And, and it'll become desolate, and then let another take his office. And so Peter here, in making sense of the situation, says, first of all, it was prophesied Judas would do this. And so he goes to the sovereignty of God and said, this has to happen. We read that at the beginning in verse 16. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. And so he's encouraging them, don't get, don't get upset about the Judas situation. God was still sovereign. God used that because Jesus had to die on the cross and rise again to pay for our sins. And so God was using this awful situation, this enemy of him, and he used it in the plan of salvation. And so Peter, there's some reassurance here of him saying, this was God's plan all along. And then he answers the question of what do we do with a missing apostle? What do we do with 11 when we're supposed to have 12? In fact, Jesus himself said there would be 12 and they would be, be ruling on thrones in Luke 22. So what do we do about that? And Peter says, well, Scripture says let another take his office. So let's obey Scripture. And what a wonderful thing to think about when we're waiting. Thank you. When we don't understand what's going on, when we're in situations that confuse us, the disciples went back to build community, they devoted themselves to prayer, and then they searched Scripture for what to do. They looked to Scripture to make sense of things and for direction. And again, my, my, my challenge for us is when we are waiting, when we are frustrated, when we are confused, when we don't know how God is working How much time do we spend in the Word? Five minutes in the morning probably isn't going to cut it at that point. But are we reading God's Word and enjoying it and embracing it and searching for what God would have us do? That's what they did. And so Peter explains the situation. God is sovereign. That helps them make sense of things. And then direction, the Bible says, let's fill the the position. Let's fill the position. And so we get to the last chunk of verses and the fourth way they waited well was obedience. And, and one of the ways I word this one in waiting is do what you know. Do what you know you should be doing. Waiting on the Lord in Scripture is never passive. Everywhere we see it in the Old Testament, it's always an active waiting that yes, I, I'm looking to God for direction. I'm waiting on Him for, for Him to give new direction. But while I'm waiting, I'm going to seek God and do what he wants me to do. I'm going to do what I know. And so that's what they're doing here is they begin to say, okay, Scripture says to fill the position. Let's fill the position. Let's obey Scripture. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so Peter here, he starts with qualifications, which is exactly where we should start when we are putting putting someone up for leadership in the church. 
and he starts with the qualifications that they had to have walked with Jesus. They needed to be part of Jesus' ministry from John to the, the resurrection. And, and they need to be witness of that. Now, part of this is what did Jesus call them to do in Acts 1-8? What did he want them to do? Be witnesses, right? Witness, we talked about it, someone that has seen it and can testify to it. And so the, the qualifications here are right out of Jesus' command. We need to have someone that can be a witness. That's what we're supposed to do. Let's spend this time preparing to do it until Jesus says go. Until the Holy Spirit comes on, on us and we can go. And so they put these qualifications together, the requirements for the, for the um, position, and they do it with integrity. So okay, it needs to be someone that, that can fulfill Jesus' ministry, that can continue that ministry. Which again goes back to earlier where he said Judas had a share of the ministry. They're picking someone that will take over his share, his part of the work. And so in verse 23, they have two guys that meet the qualifications. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And then, so how do they make the decision? And this is sort of a side note of making decisions well. They follow God's instruction of the requirements. They, they, with wisdom, they make some choices. And then in verse 24, and I love it, and you're going to see this over and over and over in Acts, and they prayed. And they prayed. And so this is where whenever we have a decision to make, we can stop and say, hey, let's pray about this. As a family, you're making family decisions. Hey, let's stop and just put this to God in prayer. You'll be teaching your kids how to seek God as you do that. They have these two guys. They're qualified. Rather than saying, I don't know, let's just, um, this is who I like for Peter. He says, let's, let's start with praying. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. And so they're deferring in obedience to the wisdom of God and saying, you choose. You choose. We want your wisdom. And that applies to us today. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place or his own destiny. And so after they had prayed, then they, in verse 26, they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now I know when we read that, we're like, they, they did what? They cast lots. I thought they prayed. I thought they were trusting God. And then they cast lots. But we have to understand this was a common way in the Old Testament to seek God because there was this over, overwhelming belief that God was sovereign. Amen? And that God could work through lots if he chose to. And, and the more that I've seen and, and, and with different things, the more I believe that. God used this. In fact, we even see in Proverbs, we see that, that this was suggested as a way of, that God would work, that God would come in and make his, his knowledge known. And so they prayed, they did due diligence, and then they trusted God by casting lots. Probably two like dice-shaped things, one for each of the men, and they'd shake it, and whichever one fell out first, that would be the choice. And yes, we could see that as random chance, unless we believe there is no random chance. And God used that to choose Matthias. 
And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they're obeying God here. They're obeying Scripture. But also in their waiting, they are preparing to do God's work. They're they're saying, okay, we know that God is the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to want us to go be witnesses. So let's pray and let's wait well. And while we're doing that, let's make sure we're ready. Make sure we're ready to go. And so we're missing a 12th apostle. And they, they bring him in. They bring Matthias in. Now, I, I want to I help us understand something because I think that there have at times have been teaching on this that has done disservice to understanding Acts. Sometimes it's said, well, this is a story about disobedience. This is a story about getting ahead of God because God was choosing Paul as the 12th apostle and this was man's choice. And that's all bunk. There is nothing in this text that shows this in a negative light. In fact, everything in the text shows this as a positive statement of the church and what they were to be doing. And especially in light of the qualifications, this man met those qualifications. And so this is a story of a faithful church, not an unfaithful church. Where they were working to do God's work. That they did due diligence and God answered prayer. And so they prayed and they sought God and they trusted his sovereignty. And Matthias became one of the apostles and went on to do the work of God. In fact, early church tradition has a couple things. They think of Matthias as possibly one of the 70 that was sent out. So not only had walked with Jesus, but had been trained by Jesus. Um, Early church history shows that Matthias quite possibly was the missionary to Ethiopia and took a region and took the witness and took the gospel there. And, and that's not in Scripture. That's early church history. But it's interesting to think, how, how might God have used this? How might God have used um, this decision by the church to take the gospel where God wanted it to go? So to, 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 to just put it all together this morning, you might have things that you're waiting on God for. You might have things that you're frustrated with that you don't understand situations in life that don't make sense but think of the four things that the early disciples did to wait well how did they pass the time and they were committed to unity they did things that built community they were committed to prayer together which is one of the reasons we do prayer sundays and opportunities for prayer they were committed to god's word and understanding their circumstances through the lens of god's word And they were committed to obeying, figuring out what they should do while they're waiting. Because waiting well isn't sitting on the couch and hoping the Holy Spirit works and gives us the energy to get up. Waiting well is doing all the things God's Word has already said we should be doing and then sensing the Spirit's direction and going with it. Don't let those times of angst stop you, paralyze you. Use them as opportunities to engage with each other, to engage in a deeper relationship with God, and to pursue Him. I'd like worship team to come up. I'm going to sing one last song together. Let's stand together as we end by worshiping um, the God we can wait on, the God we can trust, the God who gives us strength for every situation.
We come to you waiting for all kinds of things, waiting for your return, mostly, Lord, waiting for you to, to come and fix this broken world. But Lord, while we're waiting, help us to wait well by being active and actively seeking you, actively doing what you would have us do, being witnesses, Lord. And may we be a a church that does not get paralyzed in the waiting, but gets energized in the waiting because of our, our relationships with each other, our walk with you, and because of your word. Lord, I pray that for some of the hurts that are here this morning and some of the things people are going through, that you would give your Holy Spirit, to help that waiting. To help see how you're working through that and to have Scripture help make sense of that, God. And I pray that there would be a reliance on you that would show your glory in the end, God. We lift ourselves up to you in your name. Amen.